Wow. Well, this morning we are uh, we're continuing our journey through the book of Luke, uh, a study uh, that we've titled All That Jesus Began, uh, because this is the book where Luke writes about all that Jesus did during his time on earth. And the book that tells the story about what Jesus continued is the book of Acts, the book of Acts. So maybe we'll do that one next. I don't know. We'll see. But, but Jesus' work he began is not a work that ended when he died. It didn't end when he was resurrected. It's a work that he's doing even today through his church, which uh, many of you would say, yes, I am a part of that work that he is doing. And last Sunday, we, we were taking a look in, in Luke chapter 5. We were looking at the story where Jesus cleanses a, a man who was, well, he was filled with leprosy. It was a, a beautiful story, an emotional story that highlights just the love and the compassion of Jesus. And after Jesus cleansed this man, we read in Mark's gospel that this man, he went out and he began to talk freely about it and to spread the news. Even though Jesus said, don't tell anyone, he couldn't help himself, right? So he went around, he was telling everybody so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. It changed how Jesus could do ministry. But he was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. In other words, Jesus' fame became so widespread that he could not go anywhere without drawing a, a crowd. People from, from all over Israel were coming to, to see Jesus for themselves. They were coming to check him out, you know, coming to see him. And just like today, people came to see Jesus for different reasons. Some people came because they believed that he was sent from God. They wanted to hear him teach, and they, they wanted to learn from Jesus. Others were drawn to him because of his miracles. They, maybe they had physical illnesses or things that they were hoping that he would heal them of as well. Other people, I think, they were just there for the show. Like, this is really exciting times in, in, in Israel. We, we've heard stories about a, a guy turning water to wine. We've heard stories about a guy who, who, who took a bunch of fishermen out and, and their boats caught so many fish that they were sinking. Just exciting times, and they wanted to see it. And then there were those who were skeptics, right? They came to examine Jesus. They came to find fault in him, to, to find a reason to dismiss him. And the, and the truth of the matter is, every person in this room probably falls into one of those categories. You're here and you're, you're here learning and sitting as someone's teaching the Bible because of one of those reasons. You either believe that he really is the son of God and you want to get to know him better, or maybe somebody brought you here, dragged you here perhaps, I don't know, and, and you're here because you're just doing them a favor. They want you to know Jesus, but you're like, yeah, I'm not so sure. Uh, you, have your, you have your doubts. Now, up to this point in our series, and we're, we're only five chapters in, but already in Luke's gospel, we have seen that Jesus' life and his ministry are, are marked by an unprecedented authority, right? There's never been anyone like him either before or since to walk the earth. We've seen that he had authority in his teaching. We read that the people were astonished by his teaching because he taught with authority. We've seen that he has authority over the forces of evil, right? With a word, 
He's able to free those who are demon-possessed. We've seen his authority over nature, right? He says, throw down the nets. And without even speaking it, he commands the fish of the Sea of Galilee to jump into those nets, right? Amazing. We've also seen his authority to heal the sick and to cleanse lepers. We read about how he, how he healed Peter's mother-in-law, right? She was sick with a high fever. He healed her. And then that night, crowds of people were coming with all kinds of illnesses, and Jesus, one at a time, placed his hands on them and healed them. And then last week, we read that he cleansed a leper. Someone with full-blown leprosy walks away healed. And so we've already seen in just a variety of ways the unmatched authority of Jesus. But in today's passage, in today's passage, we're going to see the authority of Jesus displayed in a new way, something new. In the story that we are about to read, we're going to see that Jesus not only has authority over all those areas, right, but Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And, and, and I just want to say right from the get-go, this is the greatest authority that he carries. It, it is the one that has an eternal and lasting impact. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me now to Luke chapter 5, and uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 17. By the way, I, I say this from time to time, but if you don't have a Bible, uh, we would be happy to provide one for you. Just you know, see me or see somebody else here afterwards and say, hey, I'd love to have a Bible, and I would love it if it was free. So, and we would be happy to give, give you a Bible of your own. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 says, on one of those days... As he was teaching, uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, Luke doesn't actually mention it here, but in Mark's gospel, we're told that this story took place while Jesus was back at what we would call his home base uh, for his earthly ministry, which is the city of Capernaum. This is the same city where Jesus had cast the demon out in the synagogue. This is the same city where he had healed, you know, Simon's mother-in-law. It's also the same place where he had called, you know, his first disciples. Jesus was, you know, back in what you could call his, his new home town. People in Capernaum, they kind of got used to seeing Jesus from time to time as he would return there. And on one of those days, as he was teaching, a large crowd gathered to hear what he had to say. In Mark's gospel, we're told that, that it was such a large crowd that there was literally, there was no room available. People were, people were pressing up against the doorway just to hear Jesus's words. Now, by this point in, in Luke's gospel, again, we already know that Jesus is no stranger to crowds, right? They're following him everywhere, he goes. But Luke is highlighting something unique about this particular crowd. Luke says that Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from the capital, from Jerusalem, they were sitting down and listening to Jesus teach. This is a, this is a unique audience that is gathered on this day. And for the first time in Luke's gospel, Luke is mentioning a specific group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. 
Now, we need to pause for a moment and make sure that we understand a little bit about who the Pharisees were because while this may be the first time that they are mentioned in this book, it will not be the last time. As we continue our study through this book, we're going to see that the, the Pharisees are going to become some of the strongest opponents of Jesus. Not all of them. I need to throw that out right at the beginning because there were some Pharisees who were convinced. There were some, there were some Pharisees that were there. We talked about it on Easter, right? Nicodemus was there uh, helping to bury Jesus. We also know that, that a guy named Saul, who's later referred to as Paul, he was a Pharisee who was opposed to Jesus initially, but he ends up coming to Christ and wrote most of the New Testament, right? We're going to see that, we're going to see as we, as we work through this book also that not only were they the strongest opponents of Jesus, the Pharisees, but the Pharisees received some of Jesus' strongest rebukes. So who were they? Well, the Pharisees, they were actually one of, of four major religious groups that had developed during the time period between the Old and the New Testaments. There were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, there were the Essenes, and then there were the Zealots. And I'm going to resist the urge to talk about all four of them today um, for the sake of time. And we will. We, we're going to talk about some of these other ones as we make our way uh, through this study. But for now, I just want to focus on, on the Pharisees. The Pharisees were an extremely religious group. Th these were the super religious, right? They dedicated their lives to studying and interpreting the scriptures. That's a good thing, right? They devoted themselves to following the law of Moses as flawlessly as possible. Not a bad pursuit, right? To, to study God's word and to follow it flawlessly, that's a good thing, right? But here's the problem. In, in order to make sure that they didn't violate any of God's commandments, maybe like accidentally, they developed a complex set of man-made rules on how to obey God's laws. So, what they did is, is based on the oral and, and the written teachings of the rabbis, they created a bunch of burdensome rules which made God's commandments incredibly complicated and difficult to follow. If the Bible says, you know, rest on the Sabbath and don't work, they went to great lengths to define what it meant to work. They wanted to make sure that you didn't accidentally work on the Sabbath. So they created lists and lists and lists. They talked about how much you could lift and how far you could walk and, 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 and when you could light a candle and when you couldn't light a candle. And if you hired somebody else to light the candle instead of you, then maybe you weren't breaking the Sabbath after all, right? All kinds of these complex rules. In fact, by the time of around 300-ish AD, when they, when they formulated what's called the Mishnah, the oral teachings of the Jewish people, they had 24 chapters written about just how not to break the Sabbath. 24 chapters, 24 additions and new rules for them to follow. But here's the big problem. Not only did they create this whole list to make sure that they didn't break the rules of God, the commandments of God, they placed their list of rules on equal footing as the scriptures. 
So they had their like, hey, we got to be careful not to do this. And this is how you don't break the law. And that is just as important as the Ten Commandments. That's what they did. It'd be like me getting up here and saying that my interpretation of this is just as equal to what's actually written in the Word, which would be wrong, right? A hundred percent wrong. And in their eyes, if you broke one of their commandments and you took 2,001 steps in a day instead of 1,999, then you have now broken the commandments. Where did they come up with that number? You know, why not 3,000? Why not 4,000, right? So they had all these rules to prevent you from breaking God's commandments. But listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7 about the teachings of the Pharisees. Jesus says, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. See, in their attempts to follow the letter of God's law, they missed the heart of God's commandments. And Jesus says that they have actually, they, they actually end up leaving the commandments of God in order to fulfill the commandments or the, the teachings of men. According to Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, by the way, if you have time this week, just write it down, like read Matthew 23. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus, I mean, he lets these guys have it. He really does. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a scathing chapter to the, to the Pharisees. But in Matthew chapter 23, this, this whole complex system that they had created for living a holy life, Jesus said, had created a heavy burden, that, that they had created this heavy burden and then placed it on the shoulders of the people. But they didn't see it that way. That's not how they saw it. The Pharisees saw themselves as those who were truly devoted to God. If you were truly devoted to God, then you wouldn't have a problem following all these rules that we have made. And so they walked around. They, they, they saw themselves as like the spiritually elite. They, and they walked around. They, they, they had like this air of superiority. Not only did they believe that they were better than you, and they did, they made sure that you knew that they are better than you. They dressed differently. They, they carried themselves differently, and wherever they, they went, they made sure that everybody knew that they were there. <laughs> Hello, Pharisee here coming through. Like they, you knew when a Pharisee entered the room. Listen again to what Jesus says. In, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says this. He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. By the way, phylacteries, it's, um, it was like a, a little like leather box, like a pouch that would be tied either around the forehead or on the arm, and it would be filled with scripture, scripture verses. And they, would, they made their phylacteries broad, like, look how big my phylacteries are, <laughs> you know? You've got a little phylactery on your head. Look at the size of mine, Right? And they made their fringes long. The fringes, again, were these, like, these strands uh, that tied in knots that would hang from their garments. And, and they were commanded in the Old Testament Scriptures to do this as a way to remember God. Kind of like tying a string around your finger helps you to remember something. The, the, these, these fringes were meant to remind you of God as you were going throughout the day. And so actually, if you travel to Israel today, you'll see uh, Jewish men walking around with, with these little strands hanging down um, from their clothing. 
but the, but the Pharisees made their fringes long, you know, like not just some fringes. Look how long my fringes are, right? Mine are, I got the best fringes around. And then anyway, Jesus continues, he says, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. If they came in, they would walk up and they'd be like, hey, uh, <clears throat> move aside, that seat's for me. I'm a Pharisee, you know? And, and you would be expected to give up your seat for these, for these folks as they came in. They love the greetings in the marketplace, and they love being called rabbi by others. others. Say it again. Rabbi. Ooh, that sounds so good. Say it again, right? They love it. Listen to what Chuck Swindoll says. I love this. And by the way, Chuck Swindoll doesn't pull any punches here. He says, if there was one thing that Jesus despised... It was the very thing that every Pharisee majored in at seminary, showing off, or to cushion it a bit, self-righteousness. They were the holy Joes of Palestine, the first to enlist undiscerning recruits into the royal order of backstabbers. They were past masters in the practice of put-down prayers, and they spent their days working on ways to impress others with their somber expression and monotonous, dismal drone. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, Chuck. All right. Worst of all, by sowing the seeds of legalistic thorns and nurturing them into forbidding vines of religious intolerance, the Pharisees prevented honest seekers from approaching their God. And I think that's the thing that Jesus despised the most. Their rules and their traditions had created unnecessary hurdles for those who desired to draw near to God. They were making it difficult for people to follow God. The Pharisees were so focused on their outward appearance and their outward performance that they missed the part that God was most concerned with. And that was the condition of their hearts. Jesus could see right through him, through them, right? He could see right through them. And so Luke says that on this particular day, on this particular day, as Jesus was teaching, he's back in his hometown and everybody's gathering to hear Jesus teach, um, that, that, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were seated there listening to him. By the way, the, the, the teachers of the law, this was a specific group within the Pharisees typically referred to as the scribes. In fact, later in the same passage, we'll see them referred to as the scribes. And these scribes, these teachers of the law, these were the legal experts, okay? These were the elite of the Pharisees. They were the ones who were studying, they were the ones who were interpreting, and they were the ones who were teaching the law to others. And so these, these Pharisees and these theological experts, they have come from all over Israel. They, Luke says that they've come from Galilee. That's the region um, uh, up around the Sea of Galilee. They've come from Judea down in the south. And they've even come from the city of Jerusalem where the temple was located. So you can think of this at this point as, as an official delegation of the religious establishment that have been sent to Capernaum to check Jesus out, right? Word's been traveling, right? Word's been traveling, and, and they've had enough run-ins, and, and they've seen and they've heard about what Jesus is teaching that they've said, we need to go and check this guy out for ourselves. But make no mistake, they're not there because they're like, wow, we're just so pleased with what he's teaching. He is messing up their whole plan. 
He's got a totally different agenda on how to bring people to God. Than what the, their way to bring people to God was through obedience to, to the law and to all their commandments, trying to somehow earn God's favor, and Jesus was totally messing up their system. So they're there to critique him. They're here to judge him. They're here to find fault in his teaching so that they can dismiss him. So I don't know if you can picture this scene or not, but Luke tells us that there they were, and they were seated in the front row. They're right up front, right right where they like to be. I can, I, I can picture them, you know, sitting there, and you, you just like probably got their arms crossed, right? And they're right in the front row. They, they had faces like a lot of yours, you know, just really stern and angry. And so, no, not at all. I can't imagine, right? This was not a warm and inviting crowd that he's preaching to at this point, okay? He'd, 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 he'd seen some great crowds probably, but this one was different. All the whole front row is filled with all the super religious elites, and they are there judging every single word. I dare you to say something out of line, right? Just staring him down, challenging him. And at the end of verse 17, it says that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. So you got the, you got the religious elite there, and they're all like, right? And then you got Jesus, and it says he was filled with the power of the Lord to heal. Now, we've talked about this before, but Jesus, although he was fully God and, and fully man, he only did, only did what the Spirit of God was leading him to do. In his entire ministry, he walked moment by moment in obedience to his Father. He always submitted to the Father's will. By the way, we don't want to miss the, the connection between verse 16 that we read last week and verse 17. The connection between, remember Jesus was, he, he had to withdraw to quiet places to get alone with his Father to pray. We don't want to miss the connection between spending time with the Father and being used by the Father. Brothers and sisters, we cannot expect to see God working in and through our lives if we are not committed to a growing relationship with him. We need to spend time with God the Father, seeking his heart through, through prayer, seeking his heart through the word, listening to him speak to us through his spirit, guiding us and leading us each day. And on this day, Jesus, as he's teaching there in Capernaum, we're told that, that, that God's power was with Jesus to heal. And in verse 18, we read, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But Finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Isn't that an awesome scene? Isn't that incredible? I got to tell you, I just love the tenacity of these men who are trying to bring their friend to Jesus. And I, can I just say something? If you're somebody who's here because your friends have dragged you here, you're like, good for them. That, that is awesome, you know, because they love you enough to say, I want you to know Jesus. Amen. They do. That's why they brought you. It's not because they want to ruin your Sunday. Besides, whatever plans you had were lame anyway. We've already <laughs> heard that. So, 
So, no, they love you. They love you. They want you to know Jesus. I just love their, their tenacity. You know, they, they'd heard about Jesus. They'd heard what Jesus had been doing, and, and they have a friend who can't walk. He can't walk. He's, he's paralyzed. And so they're thinking, like, we know who can fix this. What a great time to be alive. There's a guy that's running around all over Galilee. He's healing people. He set a leper free. Did you hear about that? That's incredible, right? This is good, good stuff. And so they, they said, listen, we have to bring our friend to Jesus because Jesus can heal him. Now, just a quick side note. I want to make sure I hit this, and I'm not going to hit it at length because we talked about this uh, much more at length last week. But we need to remember that in that culture, in that culture at, at that time, disabilities like this were viewed as a divine judgment from God for sin. And so this man was not only confined to, to, to a bed, not only was he paralyzed, but he also lived with this social stigma where everybody looked down on him as though he was being judged for some sin in his life. Now, it is possible, we talked about that last week, it is possible that he was being judged for sin. We said that, right? Sometimes God does bring about illness and sickness and disease and, and things like this as a result of sin. But not every illness, sickness, and disease and injury is a result of God judging somebody for personal sin in their life. We just live in a broken and fallen world, don't we? Sin has had a lasting impact on every area of our lives ever since Adam and Eve first fell. And if you need convincing, I mentioned it last week, but I'll say it again. Read John chapter 9 where Jesus heals the man born blind. It clearly was not because of sin that that man was blind, okay? So just, just throw that out there. But that's the stigma that this guy lived with. And so these guys, they bring their friend to Jesus, right? But when they get there, when they get there, there's a crowd just pressing out, out of the house from where he's teaching, out into the courtyard, maybe even beyond out into the, to the street, right? People are craning their necks trying to hear what Jesus is saying inside the home. And when they get there, they're like, there's no way, there's no way that we're going to be able to carry our friend on this stretcher through this crowd and get up close enough where we can get our friend to Jesus, right? Do, do you think there's any chance that these people are going to give up their seats for a man who is paralyzed? Not him. You think that you think the Pharisees in the front row are going to say, oh, by all means, have my seat. Handicap parking right here, right? Right up front, right? That was lame. Oh, man, that was like, man, I did, just, did you catch that, Bob? That was like lame and that, oh, man, that was so good. It's like dad jokes coming out here. Not even on purpose, not even on purpose. But do you, is there any chance that they're going to give up their space up front, these, these, uh, these, these Pharisees? There's no way. Not for a sinning man like that guy on a stretcher. Go to the back, right? That's how he would have been treated. <laughs> so what do they do? What do they do? Do they give up? No. No, they persisted. One guy looks at the others, and he's like, <laughs> light bulb on top of the head, right? He looks up, and he's like, let's bring him up to the roof. Let's rip it open and lower him down right? And the other guys are like, are you crazy? That's a great idea, right? This is awesome. We should totally do this, right? So they do. They, they, they make their way up 
on top of the roof to lower their friend down in front of Jesus. Now, let me, let me just explain a little bit about the typical, uh, typical construction of homes in this, this time period. The typical home was built with stone or mud brick walls, and then on top of these walls, they would lay large timbers about two or three feet apart, and then they would cover those timbers with, uh, with reeds and sticks and thistles laid across the timber beams. After that, they would then pack the top of that uh, to cover the roof with a thick layer of, of dirt and clay that would be packed down. I think there's a picture if you want to go forward to that one, one more right there. So there's a thick layer of clay and dirt that was then rolled out on top. And, and what would happen is the outdoor space uh, would, would be more than just a way to keep the elements out, right? It became a functional part of their living area. So often you would see a, a set of stairs going up the outside of a home to access this upper area, this sort of a, a patio. And so these four men, they carry their buddy up th to the roof and they begin to create an opening large enough to lower their friend down into the room where Jesus is teaching. Now, <laughs> Can you imagine the scene? I mean, from the inside. I mean, it's crazy what's going on up, up, up top too, right? It's crazy. They are up there. They, they set their friend down. It's probably, they're probably winded because they just got done carrying their friend up to the roof and they set him down. They catch their breath and it's like, we got to get to work. We got we to gotta get this roof open. And so they start digging. But what an incredible scene it must have been for the people inside, right? As they're sitting there listening to Jesus teach, all of a sudden they're in thump, thump, thump. Like, what is going on up on the roof, right? And as, as they're sitting there, they're, they're hearing this thumping sound, they're hearing, and all of a sudden you got like little dirt, clay clumps falling down. They're probably afraid that the place is going to cave in, right? What is going on up there? I imagine they're probably getting a, a little bit nervous. Uh, incredibly distracting, right? No matter what, I mean, you have to admit that like, at some point they're like, what's going on? And they're, uh, no, we're listening, Jesus. What is going on up there, right? several years ago, I don't know, it's probably like 15 years ago now, but I remember one Sunday I was sitting out here and uh, Pastor Russ was up here and he was teaching. And, and right up on, on that trim board, right, right there uh, up here. So anybody remember what I'm about to say? Any hands? Okay, look, there's like, there's like seven or eight hands going up. Okay, we're all sitting out here and Russ is preaching and he is into it. It's a great message, right? And we're all looking up there because there's a mouse and this little mouse is running back and forth along the top of that trim board. He's just going back and forth. He'd stop. He'd look out at the people, and he'd run back. And I, I, to this, I don't know. I'll have to ask Russ. I don't know if he even knew what was going on. But we're all totally distracted. We're, we, we're not paying attention. I'm sure it was a great message. Whatever he said was really, really good. All I remember from that day was the mouse, right? That's all I remember. But in my mind... I picture Jesus. Jesus is up here. He's trying to teach, and they're all sitting there, and they're here, and they're like, things are happening up above, on, above the ceiling, right? And they're distracted. And in my mind, I picture Jesus, you know, saying like, hey, shh, it's all good. Don't worry about what's going on up there. Because Jesus knows, right? He knows what's about to happen. He knows who's digging into the ceiling, right? He knows what's going to go down. And so I'm thinking he's probably saying like, look, guys, relax. It's all part of the service, okay? This is... this. <laughs> This is my closing illustration. It's 
trust me, just sit tight, it's going to be it's going to be worth it. Well, whatever the case might be, whatever the case might be, after several minutes, they get the hole large enough for the men to lower their friend down through the roof, and, and, and all of a sudden, this man finds himself on his stretcher face-to-face with Jesus. And you just know, you know that the Pharisees are like, what is going on in Capernaum? This is crazy, right? This is, this is totally unorthodox. We do not like what we are seeing here. Now, before we read what happens next, I just want to take a moment to just acknowledge the type of love and the type of commitment that these four men had for their friend. I mean, just think about this. They knew, they knew that their friend needed Jesus and they would not let anything keep them from bringing him to Jesus. Don't you, don't you hope to have friends like that, you know? Which raises the question, who, who are the people? Who are the people in my life? Who are the people in your life that you need to bring to Jesus? And do you fight for them the way that these four men fought for their friend? I mean, what would it look like? What would it look like if we... By the way, you can bring your friend to Jesus every time you pray. You know that? You can bring that person before Jesus every time you pray. What would it look like to pray with the type of tenacity that these guys demonstrated for their friend? Pretty amazing, right? Well, Jesus saw this as an incredible display of faith. In verse 20, we read that when he saw their faith, he said, man, other translations say, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus looks at this paralytic man, and he looks up at his four friends who, by, at this point, their heads are just like looking down through the hole, right? They're like looking over like, what's he going to do? How's he going to heal him, right? And what Jesus sees is an incredibly, uh, just an incredible display of faith. These guys have gone to great lengths in order to get to Jesus, knowing that Jesus has the power to heal. But as much as much as this man desired to be healed physically, Jesus knew that he had a much, much greater need, didn't he? This man, like every one of us, had a need for his sins to be forgiven. But they weren't there for forgiveness, really, right? They, they brought him there to be healed. And so, like, that's great, Jesus, but what about my legs, you know? This, this statement from Jesus, your sins are forgiven you, this, this caught everybody by surprise. By the way, completely intentionally, intentional by Jesus. This is not an accident like, oh, I said the wrong thing. I was supposed to say, stand up. You know, I was supposed to lay my hands on him. And, no, this is totally intentional what Jesus is doing. Think about it, again, from the perspective of, of the paralytic and his friends. At, at this point, they know that Jesus has the ability to heal. It's, it's widespread. This guy has been healing people all over the place. And they knew that Jesus could heal their friend, right? They obviously believed that he would heal their friend. That's why they've gone to such great lengths to get him there. They knew that he could. They knew that, that or at least thought that he would. They just didn't know how. 
right? They didn't know how he was going to do it. They were like, I wonder what he's going to do. Is he going to heal him like the people at Simon's house? Is he going to lay his hands on him and he's going to get better? Or is he just going to speak a word and our friend is going to start walking? What's he going to do? They never, never would have expected him to say, your sins are forgiven. That's not what they were looking for. It's not what they expected. It may not have been what they expected, though, but it was exactly what he needed, right? It also took the Pharisees by surprise, even more so. Look at verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're not happy, right? When the Pharisees hear Jesus' words, they are stunned in this moment. They are appalled. Immediately, they are outraged. And in their hearts and in their minds, they, they begin thinking, who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? They're right. They aren't wrong in that conclusion. Only God can forgive sins, right? Because sins are an offense against God, right? Think about it this way. My friend Bob, he's got a nice truck. If I were to walk out the door right now with my car keys, and I were to walk up to Bob's truck and went down the side of it, Bob's not happy right now, okay? If I were to key the side of Bob's truck, and then I were to walk back in here, right, and Brett said, it's okay, Chris, I forgive you. <laughs> awesome. I'm off the hook, right? I mean, Brett forgave me. Right? No, Brett can't forgive me for the offense that I've just committed against Bob, right? Who can forgive me? Bob. And what we need to understand is our sins are an offense against God, so only God is able to forgive, right? So Jesus says to them in verse 22, in verse 22, he says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them and he said, why do you question in your hearts? Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise, and walk, rise and walk. So here's the thing. It would be blasphemy, right? It would be blasphemy for someone to say, I forgive your sins, unless, unless they are actually God, right? And that's what Jesus is claiming here. Make no mistake. Some people say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. Oh, he did. Oh, he did, and he's claiming to be God right here, and that's why the Pharisees are so upset. And so Jesus says, well, look, look, look. Why do you question this in your hearts? Which is easier for someone to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Jesus is about to, to display for them that he has the power to forgive sins, the authority to do so. And so this, this question, this question, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or, or, or rise and walk, which is easier to say? Which is easier to speak? Well, the obvious answer is it's easier for a person to go around and say, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. Because how do you know whether it's happened or not? 
You can say it. Doesn't mean it's actually taking place. It's really hard to prove, right, whether it's, whether it's happened or not. But if that same person goes up to a person on a stretcher who's paralyzed and says, rise up and walk, very quickly you're going to find out if this guy is the real deal or if he's a fake, right? So the very easy thing to do is go around and say this and this and this. And so Jesus says, Jesus says that to prove to you, to prove to you that I have not only the authority to forgive sins uh, or the, the authority to heal, but I also have the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to heal this man. In verse 24, he says that you may know that the Son of Man has, actually, uh, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus says, look, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins because I'm, gonna, I'm not going to just speak the easy thing. I'm going to speak the hard thing as well. And when this man stands up and he walks out of here, you're going to know that I have the authority to forgive sins. By the way, Jesus right here, he refers to himself as the son of man, the son of man. And that was a claim also to be the Messiah. This is a title that's used for the Messiah that goes all the way back into the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the Messiah is described as one like a son of man. It's actually Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses it all through, we're going to see it all through the book of Luke, the son of man. For Jesus, for Jesus, you need to understand that for Jesus, both of these statements are equally easy right? Your sins are forgiven you, rise up and walk. It's not difficult for him because he has the authority to heal and he has the authority to forgive sins. And so he says to the man, he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And in verse 25, we read, and immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. You think? You think? What an incredible day in this man's life, right? Can you imagine? Could there be a better day in this guy's life? I like to picture this man. I, I, the way that I picture him and his friends, his friends come running down off the roof. They meet him outside. He's got his bedroll or his mat or whatever he would carry it in, right? He meets them outside, and these guys are, are they're not just like, time to go home. <laughs> the guy can walk now, right? These guys are high-fiving. They're, they're, they're like jumping for joy. They're skipping. They're probably dancing. They are so thrilled that their friend has been healed. Jesus had, and, and Jesus had not only, not only had he given him what he wanted, right, to be physically healed and able to walk, but Jesus had given him his greatest need as well, the forgiveness of sins. And I, and I believe, it doesn't say it here, says he glorified God, but I believe that there was a, a new lightness about this man that he had never felt before in his life. And that was the greater gift. That was the greater gift. To be forgiven of your sins is like, it's a billion times better than having your legs restored. Because can I tell you something? His legs are gonna fail him once again. I mean, he was healed, 
But eventually, eventually this man is going to get old and he's going to die. Something, something's going to happen, right? His body is going to fail him at some point. You know, we always, we, we think, we pray, we want to be physically healed and there's nothing wrong with that. Definitely, yes, pray, God, please heal my loved one. Please heal him. And sometimes he does, right? And we praise him for it. It's such a wonderful gift when God heals. And sometimes he doesn't, right? But we think, we think that that's the greatest gift. But even if he heals you physically, unless he returns, you're going to die eventually, right? I mean, do you think this guy is still running around, jumping around in, in Israel still 2,000 years later? No, right? He died. He's gone. But the gift that Jesus gave him, the forgiveness of sins, he's still experiencing that gift. It's the greatest gift you can give. It's an eternal gift that will never, ever fail you. You get your sins forgiven, it's a gift for all eternity. It's amazing. It's amazing. And that's what Jesus gave him. And so, yes, he went home. He went home glorifying God, worshiping God, and praising him for all that, that he had done. And for those of you if, you, if you've experienced God's forgiveness in your life, and you, you've been there, You've come to Christ and you've said, I, I know that I don't deserve it, but God, would you forgive me? Forgive me of my sins. And when you've experienced that, you know the type of joy that this man is feeling that day, don't you? You've experienced it. You know it. We have so, so much to praise God for, don't we? So much to praise God for. Verse 26, we're told to close that, that amazement seized them all, seized them all, including the Pharisees, right? They're there, all, everyone there is seized with amazement. And they glorify God and they were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. They were blown away, right? Everybody who was there was blown away. They, they were amazed. It doesn't say they all, though, turned to Jesus and recognized him as their Messiah. They couldn't deny that they'd seen something amazing, right? You can't deny that. You know, this should have caused, this should have caused the Pharisees to realize that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. This should have been enough. The miracles that he was performing all over the country were proof of who he is. And now he's standing and saying, not only can I heal, but I can forgive sins. He was saying, I am the son of God. I'm here. The Messiah has come. He was proclaiming. And they should have recognized what was staring them in the face. But they didn't. They dug in their heels. And as we're going to see in, in the weeks to come, they continued to search for reasons to discredit him because he didn't meet their expectations. You know, I, and it's easy. I mean, it's easy for us to look at them and say, what morons, right? But man, people still doing the same thing today. We still do the same thing today. It's written right down for us. You can't, you can't disprove the fact that Jesus Christ came and lived and, 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 and died and rose again. It's indisputable. 
what he accomplished on the earth, it's, it's written down for us that you may know, that you may know that he is the Messiah. And yet we, we reject what's right in front of us because it doesn't fit the plan that we have for our lives. He doesn't fit our expectations. So what about you? I, I don't know. What about you? You know, you're here today. You're here. What's your response to what we're reading about Jesus. I mean, is your response to, to, to say, wow, he's amazing. He's amazing. He is God's son. I want to glorify him. I want to praise him. I want to worship him with all that I have for the rest of my life. You're going to recognize him for who he truly is? You know? That he has the authority to forgive your sins? Not only, by the way, not only does he have the authority to forgive your sins, he actually paid for your sins as well. He hadn't done that yet, right? But he's going to. He died on a cross for your sins. So I guess the question is, will you come to him? Will you? Will you come to him like the, like the paralytic in the story, broken, needy? I need him. I'm broken. I've got sins in my life. I need his forgiveness. Because if you come to Jesus like that, if you come to him like that, he will forgive your sins. He will. And he'll give you the greatest gift that you could possibly have, the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life with him. You won't just you know, be healed temporarily for a little while. You will be healed for all eternity, knowing that when you die, you'll be given a new and glorified body to spend all of eternity worshiping in, in his presence. Isn't that amazing? That's what's available for those who turn to Jesus. And then like the paralytic, if you come to him, you you can leave Fayette Baptist Church today and your heart can be filled with praise, right? With a desire to glorify God. That that could be your reality today. And so if that's something you desire, I want to encourage you to, as the the worship team is closing in prayer, uh, closing in song, I want to encourage you to close your time here in prayer, crying out to God and asking him to forgive you of your sins. Confess that you need him. Recognize that he is God's son who came, he lived, he died, and he rose again to, to bring you eternal life. You pray to him and ask him to come into your life and he will forgive you of your sins. Amen? Amen. Let's have the worship team come up as I close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just love you so much. I cannot thank you enough for the amazing goodness of who you are. You are a God who loves, 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 and you seek those who will come to you for forgiveness. You're you're so ready to forgive those who will come to you recognizing their need. And so, God, I pray this morning, if there's somebody here who has never given their life to you, has never cried out to you and said, God, yes, Jesus, Please forgive me of my sins. I pray that today would be the day that they would turn their heart over to you. That they, like this paralytic, would leave this place praising God and glorifying you for the work that you have done in their life. And God, for the rest of us, I pray that you would fill us. If we, if we already know you, I pray that you would remind us just how much we have to praise you for. That we would worship you for all that you've done. And God, give us the, the, the tenacity and the, and, and the desire to bring our friends to you the way that these friends desire to bring their, their buddy to your son, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.